This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by George Pilling. www.storysales.com Jude the Obscure by Thomas Hardy, Part 3rd, at Melchester, Chapter 1. For there was no other girl, O bridegroom, like her. Sappho, H.T. Wharton, 1. It was a new idea. The ecclesiastical and altruistic life as distinct from the intellectual and emulative life. A man could preach and do good to his fellow creatures without taking double firsts in the schools of Christminster or having anything but ordinary knowledge. The old fancy which had led on to the culminating vision of the bishopric had not been an ethical or theological enthusiasm at all, but a mundane ambition masquerading in a surplus. He feared that his whole scheme had degenerated to, even though it might not have originated in, a social unrest which had no foundation in the nobler instincts, which was purely an artificial product of civilization. There were thousands of young men on the same self-seeking track at the present moment. The sensual hind who ate, drank, and lived carelessly with his wife through the days of his vanity was a more likable being than he. But to enter the church in such an unscholarly way that he could not in any probability rise to a higher grade through all his career than that of the humble curate wearing his life out in an obscure village or city slum, that might have a touch of goodness and greatness in it. That might be true religion, and a purgatorial course worthy of being followed by a remorseful man. The favorable light in which this new thought showed itself by contrast with his foregone intentions cheered Jude as he sat there shabby and lonely, and it may be said to have given, during the next few days, the coup de grace to his intellectual career, a career which had extended over the greater part of a dozen years. He did nothing, however, for some long stagnant time to advance his new desire, occupying himself with little local jobs and putting up and lettering headstones about the neighboring villages, and submitting to be regarded as a social failure, a return purchase, by the half-dozen or so farmers and other country people who condescended to nod to him. The human interest of the new intention, and a human interest is indispensable to the most spiritual and self-sacrificing, was created by a letter from Sue, bearing a fresh postmark. She evidently wrote with anxiety, and told very little about her own doings, more than that she had passed some sort of examination for a Queen's scholarship and was going to enter a training college at Melchester to complete herself for the vocation she had chosen partly by his influence. There was a theological college at Melchester. Melchester was a quiet and soothing place, almost entirely ecclesiastical in its tone, a spot where worldly learning and intellectual smartness had no establishment, where the altruistic feeling that he did possess would perhaps be more highly estimated than a brilliancy which he did not. As it would be necessary that he should continue for a time to work at his trade while reading up divinity, which he had neglected at Christminster for the ordinary classical grind, what better course for him than to get employment at the further city and pursue this plan of reading? That his excessive human interest in the new place was entirely of Sue's making, while at the same time Sue was to be regarded even less than formerly as proper to create it, had an ethical contradictoriness to which he was not blind. But that much he conceded to human frailty, 
and hoped to learn to love her only as a friend and kinswoman. He considered that he might so mark out his coming years as to begin his ministry at the age of thirty, an age which much attracted him as being that of his exemplar when he first began to teach in Galilee. This would allow him plenty of time for deliberate study, and for acquiring capital by his trade to help his after-course of keeping the necessary terms at a theological college. Christmas had come and passed, and Sue had gone over to the Melchester Normal School. The time was just the worst in the year for Jude to get into new employment, and he had written suggesting to her that he should postpone his arrival for a month or so till the days had lengthened. She had acquiesced so readily that he wished he had not proposed it. She evidently did not much care about him, though she had never once reproached him for his strange conduct in coming to her that night, and his silent disappearance. Neither had she ever said a word about her relations with Mr. Phillotson. Suddenly, however, quite a passionate letter arrived from Sue. She was quite lonely and miserable, she told him. She hated the place she was in. It was worse than the ecclesiastical designers, worse than anywhere. She felt utterly friendless. Could he come immediately? Though when he did come, she would only be able to see him at limited times, the rules of the establishment she found herself in being strict to a degree. It was Mr. Phillotson who advised her to come there, and she wished she had never listened to him. Phillotson's suit was not exactly prospering, evidently, and Jude felt unreasonably glad. He packed up his things and went to Melchester with a lighter heart than he had known for months. This being the turning over a new leaf, he duly looked about for a temperance hotel and found a little establishment of that description in the street leading from the station. When he had had something to eat, he walked out into the dull winter light over the town bridge and turned the corner towards the close. The day was foggy, and standing under the walls of the most graceful architectural pile in England, he paused and looked up. The lofty building was visible as far as the roofridge. Above, the dwindling spire rose more and more remotely, till its apex was quite lost in the mist drifting across it. The lamps now began to be lighted, and turning to the west front, he walked around. He took it as a good omen that numerous blocks of stone were lying about, which signified that the cathedral was undergoing restoration or repair to a considerable extent. It seemed to him, full of the superstitions of his beliefs, that this was an exercise of forethought on the part of a ruling power, that he might find plenty to do in the art he practiced, while waiting for a call to higher labors. Then a wave of warmth came over him as he thought of how near he stood to the bright-eyed, vivacious girl with the broad forehead and pile of dark hair above it, the girl with a kindling glance, daringly soft at times, something like that of the girls he had seen in engravings from paintings of the Spanish school. She was here, actually in this close, in one of the houses confronting this very west façade. He went down the broad gravel path towards the building. It was an ancient edifice of the 15th century, once a palace, now a training school, with mullioned and transomed windows and a courtyard in front shut in from the road by a wall. Jude opened the gate and went up to the door through which, on inquiring for his cousin, he was gingerly admitted to a waiting room, and in a few minutes she came. Though she had been here such a short while, she was not as he had seen her last. All her bounding manner was gone. Her curves of motion had become subdued lines. The screens and subtleties of convention had likewise disappeared. Yet neither was she quite the woman who had written the letter that summoned him. That had plainly been dashed off on an impulse, which second thoughts had somewhat regretted. 
thoughts that were possibly of his recent self-disgrace. Jude was quite overcome with emotion. You don't think me a demoralized wretch for coming to you as I was and going so shamefully, Sue? Oh, I have tried not to. You said enough to let me know what had caused it. I hope I shall never have any doubt of your worthiness, my poor Jude, and I am glad you have come. She wore a murray-colored gown with a little lace collar. It was made quite plain and hung about her slight figure with clinging gracefulness. Her hair, which formerly she had worn according to the custom of the day, was now twisted up tightly, and she had altogether the air of a woman clipped and pruned by severe discipline, and under brightness shining through from the depths which that discipline had not yet been able to reach. She had come forward prettily, but Jude felt that she had hardly expected him to kiss her, as he was burning to do, under other colors than those of cousinship. He could not perceive the least sign that Sue regarded him as a lover or ever would do so now that she knew the worst of him, even if he had the right to behave as one, and this helped on his growing resolve to tell her of his matrimonial entanglement, which he had put off doing from time to time in sheer dread of losing the bliss of her company. Sue came out into the town with him, and they walked and talked with tongues centered only on the passing moments. Jude said he would like to buy her a little present of some sort, and then she confessed, with something of shame, that she was dreadfully hungry. They were kept on very short allowances in the college, and a dinner, tea, and supper all in one was a present she most desired in the world. Jude thereupon took her to an inn and ordered whatever the house afforded, which was not much. The place, however, gave them a delightful opportunity for a tete-a-tete, -tete, nobody else being in the room, and they talked freely. She told him about the school as it was at that date, and the rough living and the mixed character of her fellow students, gathered together from all parts of the diocese, and how she had to get up and work by gaslight in the early morning, with all the bitterness of a young person to whom restraint was new. To all this he listened, but it was not what he wanted especially to know her relations with Phillotson. That was what she did not tell. When they had sat and eaten, Jude impulsively placed his hand upon hers. She looked up and smiled, and took his quite freely into her own little soft one, dividing his fingers and coolly examining them, as if they were the fingers of a glove she was purchasing. "'Your hands are rather rough, Jude, aren't they?' she said. "'Yes. So would yours be if they held a mallet and chisel all day.' I don't dislike it, you know. I think it is noble to see a man's hand subdued to what he works in. Well, I'm rather glad I came to this training school after all. See how independent I shall be after two years' training? I shall pass pretty high, I expect, and Mr. Phillotson will use his influence to get me a big school. She had touched the subject at last. Uh, I had a suspicion, a fear, said Jude, that he cared about you rather warmly and perhaps wanted to marry you. Now, don't be such a silly boy. He has said something about it, I expect. If he had, what would it matter? An old man like him? Oh, come, Sue, he's not so very old, and I know what I saw him doing. Not kissing me, that I am certain. No, but putting his arm around your waist. Ah, uh, I remember. But I didn't know he was going to. You are wriggling out of it, Sue, and it isn't quite kind. Her ever-sensitive lip began to quiver, and her eye to blink at something this reproof was deciding her to say. "'I know you'll be angry if I tell you everything, and that's why I don't want to.' 
Very well then, dear, he said soothingly. I have no real right to ask you, and I don't wish to know. I shall tell you, said she, with the perverseness that was part of her. This is what I have done. I have promised. I have promised that I will marry him when I come out of the training school two years hence, and have got my certificate. His plan being that we shall then take a large double school in a great town, he the boys, and I the girls, as married school teachers often do, and make a good income between us. Oh, Sue! But of course it is right. You couldn't have done better. He glanced at her, and their eyes met, the reproach in his own belying his words. Then he drew his hand quite away from hers, and turned his face in estrangement from her to the window. Sue regarded him passively without moving. I knew you would be angry, she said with an air of no emotion whatever. Very well, I am wrong, I suppose. I ought not to have let you come to see me. We had better not meet again and will only correspond at long intervals on purely business matters. This was just the thing he would not be able to bear, as she probably knew, and it brought him round at once. Oh, yes, we will, he said quickly. Your being engaged can make no difference to me whatever. I have a perfect right to see you when I want to, and I shall. Then don't let's talk of it any more. It is quite spoiling our evening together. What does it matter about what one is going to do two years hence? She was something of a riddle to him, and he let the subject drift away. Shall we go and sit in the cathedral, he asked, when their meal was finished. Cathedral? Yes. Though I think I'd rather sit in the railway station, she answered, a remnant of vexation still in her voice. That's the center of the town life now. The cathedral has had its day. How modern you are. So would you be if you had lived so much in the Middle Ages as I have done these last few years. The cathedral was a very good place four or five centuries ago, but it is played out now. I am not modern either. I am more ancient than medievalism, if you only knew. Jude looked distressed. There, I won't say any more of that, she cried. Only you don't know how bad I am from your point of view, or you wouldn't have think so much of me or care whether I was engaged or not. Now there's just time for us to walk around the close. Then I must go in, or I shall be locked out for the night. He took her to the gate and they parted. Jude had a conviction that his unhappy visit to her on that sad night had precipitated this marriage engagement, and it did anything but add to his happiness. Her reproach had taken that shape then, and not the shape of words. However, next day he set about seeking employment, which was not so easy to get as at Christminster, there being, as a rule, less stone-cutting in progress in this quiet city, and hands being mostly permanent. But he edged himself in by degrees. His first work was done carving at the cemetery on the hill, and ultimately he became engaged on the labor he most desired, the cathedral repairs, which were very extensive, the whole interior stonework having been overhauled to be largely replaced by new. It might be a labor of years to get it all done, and he had confidence enough in his own skill with the mallet and chisel to feel that it would be a matter of choice with himself how long he would stay. The lodgings he took near the close gate would not have disgraced a curate, the rent representing a higher percentage on his wages than mechanics of any sort usually care to pay. His combined bed and sitting room was furnished with framed photographs of the rectories and deaneries at which his landlady had lived as a trusted servant in her time, and the parlor downstairs bore a clock on the mantelpiece inscribed to the effect that it was presented to the same serious-minded woman by her fellow servants on the occasion of her marriage. 
Jude added to the furniture of his room by unpacking photographs of the ecclesiastical carvings and monuments that he had executed with his own hands, and he was deemed a satisfactory acquisition as a tenant of the vacant apartment. He found an ample supply of theological books in the city bookshops, and with these his studies were recommenced in a different spirit and direction than his former course. As a relaxation from the fathers and such stock works as Paley and Butler, he read Newman, Pusey, and many other modern lights. He hired a harmonium, set it up in his lodging, and practiced chants thereon, single and double. End of Part Third, Chapter One